0: So this is our Simon Don reading group continuing with individuation volume two on the text history of the notion of the individual. Um, we're picking up from page 599 of the PDF. We're on the section on Rousseau. Um, we will most likely not finish that section today, so we probably have one more at least, uh, one one more session at least on, on that. Um, so last time we started with um, Simon Don's uh, short sort of general introduction to the 18th century uh, and he develops this notion of uh, an, uh, uh, a paradox of expression or um, this sort of contradiction that's built into this notion of expression and so he treats expression as being the essential concept for uh, the individual in the 18th century. So an individual is something that expresses itself for the for 18th century authors, but the the sort of contradiction or the the paradox of expression is that uh, there are sort of two opposed sides to this notion of expression. Uh, on the one hand, uh, to express something, you have to take some sort of content that is uh, unexpressed, that that um, is in a some sort of implicit or uh, potential form that is not yet actualized. So you have to take that content and then express it. You have to um, manifest it in the world or actualize it or, or whatever that transition exactly looks like. But the idea is that you, you have the, the exact same content. The identical content is in an unexpressed state to start with, and then it becomes expressed. Uh, so um, any sort of you know everyday action um, you, you can think of as a kind of expression of uh, uh, an intention. So your intention to uh, get a bowl of cereal uh, is in, in a sort of potential or unactualized state, and then you get the bowl of cereal, and then that um, that intention is actualized uh, or expressed. Uh, so this is the same content that is unexpressed becoming expressed. So that's one one side of the expression uh, uh, paradox. Uh, but then the other side is that if we treat expression as something fundamental to what an individual is as uh, an essential quality of an individual then it starts to be sort of hard to understand why uh, uh, what exactly expression is doing Uh, so if we're just taking the same content the exact same content goes from an unexpressed state to an expressed state then what's the whole point of expression in the first place if it's if there's no change to the content that is being expressed. And, and why is this process of taking a, a, a content from an unexpressed state to an expressed state, why is that process uh, fundamental to what an individual is? Uh, so on the one hand, the uh, process of expression is supposed to not change the content of the that's being expressed. And then on the other hand, it seems that if we want to treat expression as uh, fundamental to what an individual is, there there should be some kind of transformation of the content uh, that you know, expressing yourself should uh, transform you in some way, or or bring about a, a change in uh, the uh, in the content being expressed. So this is the the kind of paradox that Do identifies with this notion of expression as fundamental to what an individual is. And different authors in the 18th century, as we'll see as, uh, in our future readings, um, they sort of come up with different ways of. Uh, either selecting one side as being more important than the other or of trying to reconcile these two sides of, uh, of expression. Um, but for, for Rousseau, as we have seen in the, the first part that we read last time, uh, he sort of uh, stays with this paradox. He, he doesn't try to reconcile the two sides. He, he treats these two um, aspects of expression as, as sort of two aspects of the individual that um, exist that, that coexist even though they're contradictory. So the individual for Rousseau, the human individual in particular is, is what he's interested in, um, has these these sort of dualities built into it. So there's a, a duality between uh, between uh, um, different aspects of temperament. Um, so for for Rousseau he um, depicts himself as being as having a, a uh, passions that are quick to respond to a situation, uh, but then a, a slow um, uh, mind or a slow um, intellectual response to the situation. So there's a, a kind of disjunction between the passions and the mind or uh, uh, or the intellect, I guess, uh, for Rousseau. Uh, and so this is a um, a kind of disjunction within the individual that that Rousseau identifies in himself. Uh, and then we also have um, um, within within the body we have these um, sort of uh, contradictions or um, disjunctions. In that, uh, for for Rousseau, he only, uh, as, as he puts it, he only feels himself to be alive when he's in a state of sickness, of uh, uh, not not a sort of complete sickness where he's um, uh, too weak to express himself, but a, a sort of Semi-sick state where he is not in, in full health, um, because then he would just be sort of absorbed in life and and go about his daily activities without uh, reflection. Uh, but he's sick enough that he sort of feels his life or his uh, uh, energy or or whatever you want to call it, um, and and he sort of reflects on his own condition, and uh, and he has enough force to express himself in accordance with that reflection. So uh, this this is a, another sort of paradox where it's only through sickness that you're able to sort of express yourself, express your uh, the vitality of your life. Uh, and I think that is about all that I wanted to mention before we get started. Um, so if someone else would like to read from
1: 5.99 of the PDF, um, Moral Conscience Reflects, uh, yeah, I can read. Moral conscience reflects the same basic duality. All things considered, I, who always believed and still think the best of men, felt there is no man, however pure it may be, who does not internally conceal some hideous vice. That's the quote. Theft has its beautiful side. It is a form of desire and access to inaccessible places, to a garden of the Hesperides. Consequently, there is an ambivalence in theft. Which is on one side a wrong, the possibility of debasement, and on the other an act that provides the feeling of freedom. The degrading automatism of instinctual theft and the freedom of the gratuitous act coincide in the ambivalence of individual motivation. In itself, the act of expressing is capable of organizing the individual being, but at the price of a duality lived at the very instant of expression. Quote, by giving myself Both to the memory of the impression and to the present feeling, I will doubly depict the state of my soul, namely the moment when the event happened to me and the moment when I described it. The state of self-enjoyment that characterizes expression is comparable to the states of self-enjoyment that are the very feeling of existence in its immediacy and irreducibility. This feeling involves plenitude and desire at the same time. The plenitude is that of sensation, whether direct or rekindled by memory. Uh, When the being is fully engaged in pleasure or passion, possession is enjoyment, which can have external objects, but is nonetheless a happiness separate from its source, withdrawing, so to speak, from things and beings, while continuing to draw its strength, its duration, and its renewal from things and beings. Uh, Quote, how to say what was not said, done, or even thought, but tasted, felt, without uttering some other object of my happiness than this very feeling. Happiness followed me everywhere. It was not in any assignable thing. It was all in myself, and it could not leave me for a single moment. This ambivalence of interiority and exteriority, the dependence on, quote, occasional causes, unquote, and autonomy, is clearly marked in reverie, and quite particularly in the first form of reverie for Rousseau, wherein the being transforms the sensations it receives from nature around him and reconstitutes an inner landscape within himself. On feast day, Jean Jacques goes out for a walk around town in solitude, haunted by the image of Madame de Warhol. Well, the context first, uh, context first announced, reemerges in Impressions. And what alone is described is that which remains in memory to have touched his heart: the external circumstances, the ringing of bells, the beauty of the day, the pleasantness of the landscape, the scattered pastoral houses, so to speak seen again, refracted by the sensations. Uh, This reverie directed toward the future is a precise reverie, not diffuse like those reveries of the dialogues in the promenade, which there will be later. If there is a part of receptivity in it, there is also a part of creation. And in this rapport between receptivity and creation, or better yet, between the passive state and the active state, it is the first state that will increasingly prevail as Jean-Jacques grows older. Uh, I guess I could stop. There, I don't know, this paragraph is
0: another long one. Yeah, that's fine. That's a good place uh, to stop for now. Um, right, so there's another point that I didn't mention in my, my recap that we talked about last time, which is um, the way that for Huso, there's this um, uh, influence of the environment on on his um, sort of spiritual state or his emotional state. Um, so he, he, uh, he sort of finds himself in various emotional states dependent on what kind of surroundings he's in. And Simon in a couple of footnotes, makes this kind of strange um, uh, explanation of how uh, Rousseau belongs to what he calls a, a vegetative type of, uh, of um, personality. So he's, um, he, um, he only uh, feels himself to be in a, a state of strength or a state of uh, pleasure or uh, happiness when he's surrounded by vegetation. Uh, and so he, when he's in town and he's, um, he's surrounded by buildings and there's no plants around him, he feels like he can't breathe and he feels weak. And then when he is in the countryside and he's surrounded by plants, he feels that he can breathe freely and he feels, uh, the sort of strength and the vitality that he didn't have in the city. Uh, and so, um, the the sort of typology that that Simon proposes here I think is a little bit um, debatable but at least uh, this is a a sort of recurring pattern in Rousseau's writings that he um, that he uh, sort of uh, represents himself as being um, as being influenced by the surroundings in in terms of his emotional state uh, there's also here um, uh, another sort of um, um, opposition or disjunction within the individual that Simon don identifies which is the what he calls here the ambivalence of interiority and exteriority so uh, the the exterior aspect uh, is again this influence of the environment uh, on the emotional state of the individual and so the the individual or or Rousseau as this individual is sort of subject to influences from without but at the same time he wants to identify himself as being autonomous as being an individual who is uh, sort of distinct from uh, from other individuals and um, has this sort of singularity uh, and uh, so this is something that would be sort of interior to the individual and and so Rouseau uh, sort of uses both aspects or or points to both of these aspects at the same time and uh doesn't try to reconcile them.
1: One thing that um, struck me finishing up this Rousseau section is, as you noted last time, the um, similarity between the way Simondon talks about Rousseau and the way he talks about uh, certain aspects of psychic and collective life in volume one. But the idea of kind of pulling the, either pulling the exterior within the individual or uh, conversely the kind of projection of the interior of the individual onto the world um seem sound a lot like his discussion of anxiety in volume one. And I think that uh later parts of the section on Rousseau make that connection more explicit.
0: Yeah, the um yeah so we did talk about last time um how some of these passages on on Rousseau um um I think suggest that he is sort of thinking of Rousseau when he uh, developed certain um, concepts in volume one that we saw when we were reading about psychic and collective individuation. Uh, so there's this, um, um, like the interaction of the individual with its environment, for example, um, that there's a kind of uh, uh, reciprocal influence between the, the individual and the environment uh, as uh, you know, producing a, a psychical state. Um, the bit about anxiety um, I'm not sure exactly how it will fit in here Um, but um, yeah I guess the idea here um, this relationship between the internal and the external is um, so in the the section on anxiety there's a a kind of uh, he treats anxiety as an attempt to sort of realize within the individual something that uh, should be or or is normally accomplished in the collective. Uh, so uh, the the individual um, undergoes a a process of um, uh, sort of uh, de uh, destructuring, I guess, um, in anxiety. So all the sort of uh, habits and structures of life that have been developed over the course of a lifetime sort of fade away or, or melt away and um, are, are sort of destructured in anxiety. And uh, there's a sort of uh, attempts to sort of, to use this moment as a kind of um, precursor to a, a new structuration. And he suggests that this is uh, a sort of uh, um, occasionally successful. He says in, in some rare cases, I think is the, the phrase he uses that it might be successful, uh, but for most people, Anxiety is a kind of dead end uh, and this new individuation or this new structuration has to happen in the collective as opposed to in, in the individual isolated from the world. Uh, and so I think maybe here we can see the um, this relation between interiority and exteriority in in similar terms um, where the, the individual tries to, uh, so Rousseau as this um, peculiar individual tries to, uh, sort of individuate himself uh, independently from the world. But then at the same time, he's also um, sort of subject to the influences of the world. And, and there's a, a kind of, um, I guess, impasse in his attempts to individuate himself distinctly for, or separately from the rest of the world.
2: Um, uh, regarding this, like, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if I can make a question like uh, in relation to Aristotle form and matter um regarding exteriority and interiority. Uh one one of my colleagues asked me like why Simong was against uh, the Aristotle idea of a form and meta, but I couldn't give um precise answer to that question. Uh wh- what I'm thinking is that like um the uh for Simong like the boundaries of a form and meta or boundaries or exterior exteriority and interiority are like ambiguous. Uh, it could uh, coexist and it could overlap. Um, there is no uh, precise distinction between them. That's my understanding. I'm, I'm not sure, though. Uh, do you have any ideas about this?
0: Yeah, that's um that's a good question. Um, uh, so I think you're right to say that this interiority, exteriority opposition is uh, similar in some ways to the form and matter opposition that uh, we saw in Volume 1. And uh, in Volume 1, in the the part on um, the the example of the brick, which was Simondon's um, uh, sort of um, uh, thought experiment or or kind of conceptual demonstration of uh, of how um, hylomorphism or the the form and matter doctrine uh, is is limited. Uh, so his his argument there was that uh, the the hylomorphic doctrine. Um, has an account of the form and an account of the matter, but it doesn't have an account of the interaction of the two. It, it doesn't have an account of how the form comes to be uh, imposed on the matter or how the matter comes to take on a certain form. Uh, and he calls this sort of uh, interaction between the two, the the dark zone or the obscure zone of the hylomorphic theory. So, uh, and then he, I think makes a a pretty interesting soci- sociological observation that uh, that this, uh, sort of intellectual position corresponds to the, the social role of the slave owner who, um, who just, um, buys a bunch of clay, uh, and then tells his slaves make a bunch of bricks, uh, of this shape or whatever. And so he, he has a a shape in his mind and he has a bunch of clay in, uh, in his, uh, workshop or whatever. And, uh, and then he he sort of relies on the slave's capacity to uh, impose that form onto the the mass of clay, and uh, and so this um, this sort of leaves aside the actual physical process of uh, form taking that occurs in the production of a brick, where uh, it's not just a sort of geometrical abstract form, but uh, an actual physical mold of some kind made of wood or whatever that the the worker uses and uh, and then the clay itself is not just a, a sort of uh, pure matter or abstract matter, but it's uh, it's a, a kind of matter that has a particular structure uh, that allows for it to uh, to be um, to take on the form. So it has to be processed. It has to you have to make sure there are no sort of bits of gravel mixed in with the clay, um, and uh, and then the the actual. Operation of taking on form is a kind of transmission of force across the the whole mass of clay. So the the walls of the mold transmit force to the the clay w- within the mold and um, uh, impose a, a certain structure onto the the mass of clay. And and so it's this interaction that Simon Don wants to focus on, as opposed to the um, the matter and the form before the interaction. And uh, and so this is, I think, his. Uh, an instance of his sort of general strategy with any of these conceptual oppositions. So like in this case, interiority and exteriority, uh, he wants to focus not on the two terms before they become related or before they interact with each other, but he wants to look at the sort of um, fine grain of that interaction itself uh, as being what is fundamental and, uh, and then seeing the two terms as, as being sort of generated out of that interaction.
2: Uh, So, you know Oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. Go, ahead, go, ahead. go
1: ahead i was sorry. just going to say quickly it just occurred to me that uh, how similar that is to um the antinomies in the first critique and finding the ground under the dialectical opposition um sorry go ahead, yeah I think, yeah yeah go ahead ollie
2: oh uh, what i thought do is like uh, it's the process of singularity because like according to the um uh, here another question comes comes up like uh who's the agent agent of the whole the process but Apart from that, what I'm thinking is that the how to mix the mix the uh, uh, matter i mean it could decide the form so there is no fixed form and matter and there could be a singular form and matter all the way that's like a point of a symbol. i just I, I i thought that way I'm not sure though still
0: yeah. yeah so in the in the brick example um there's a a kind of um, repeatability built into the process that you have a, a mold that can um, be used to make many bricks um, and and so the the process um, allows for a kind of um a kind of repeatability or um uh, generality of of this form being imposed on on matter sorry the dog is making noise here um, um whereas in other examples um like the crystal example that he he wants to use as a, a sort of replacement for the brick as a, a sort of paradigm um the crystallization is is always a singular event because it um there's uh there's always this uh germ crystal that that brings about the crystallization of the fluid um and uh it's it's somewhat um Ambiguous I think in in that uh, text, where exactly this germ crystal was meant to come from um uh, in 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 the case of just sort of crystallization examples, we can sort of take an existing crystal as being the the germ for a, a new crystallization, but um I guess we we would want to know in general where the initial structure comes from that brings about structuration, and he he's somewhat vague on that on that topic um in uh in uh i think it was in form information potentials that we read um a while ago he uh in the discussion portion he sort of raises the possibility that there's a a kind of chance um creation of structure um that that structure arises by chance and then um progresses uh by structuring something unstructured uh but then he he sort of um hesitates to assert this He, he says something like uh this doesn't seem satisfactory, or, or something along those lines. Um, but um, in the in general, yes, the the crystallization example is, is a an example with um, a kind of a kind of singularity that uh, doesn't exist in the brick example, and I think that's one reason why Simon Don thinks it's superior as a, a sort of paradigm uh, for how to understand individuation uh, in, in the sense that it's um, uh, individuation is a is a kind of a uh, singular process it's not um uh it's not this uh imposition of a form on a matter which it would in principle be repeatable it's uh this kind of singular uh encounter between uh, a material condition and an information condition um that uh that uh, bring about a process of structuration
2: Oh thank you it's a clear what about Angus question
0: Oh yes, um yeah, so in connection with the uh antinomies um I think, yeah, I think we can definitely make a, a comparison um but I think I would want to distinguish Simon Don's approach to these conceptual oppositions to uh from Kant's approach uh in the sense that uh for Kant uh so in in the antinomies like um the either the world has a beginning in time or it doesn't uh, we have these two opposed uh, determinations of the world with respect to time. Um, what Kant wants to say is that uh, neither of these is uh, is adequate either one either if we select either one, we end up in a contradiction um, and uh, and so his sort of solution to this problem is to say that uh, these concepts uh, in particular the use of of the concept of time um, only apply to the world, uh, as, uh, as it's, um, as it's given to us, um, uh, in experience. Uh, and so, um, we can't assert of the world as it is in its, in itself, um, that, uh, that it either has a beginning in time or, uh, doesn't have a beginning in time. And so he wants to deny that, that either, uh, either of these, um, that the, either of these options are, are, um, are. Uh, acceptable. Uh, and oh yes. And yeah, so Angus has put in the chat here that in the, the, the last two antinomies, um, both options are true. So in the first two, uh, he wants to say that neither, um, neither option is, is, is true. And then in the second uh, pair of antinomies, he says that both are true. Um, but I think in each case he wants to, um, sort of deny the validity of the opposition, uh, of this conceptual opposition, uh, Insofar as it applies to to the world as it is in itself, or to uh, to God or the soul, and so on, um, in the other in the paralogisms and and uh, uh, the other parts of the dialectic uh, of pure reason. Um, so he he um, he. I think where, where I think it, it differs from uh, Simondon is that Simondon wants to give um, a sort of dynamic or genetic account of the opposition on the basis of the middle term or the relation between them. Uh, and so this is connected with his uh, his doctrine of relation, having the status of being. Uh, and so it's it's not form and matter that we start with as two opposed terms and then try to um, explain how they interact with each other. But we start from the relation between form and matter or the interaction between form and matter. Um, and then we um, see how the, the two opposed notions of form and matter um, arise out of this relation or out of this um, middle term. Uh, And so I think this is um, a sort of uh, genetic uh, account of conceptual oppositions, uh, whereas what Kant wants to do is a kind of, uh, I guess, defusing of conceptual oppositions, kind of um, making it so that we don't feel like we need to choose between these pairs of opposed concepts in, you know, either the world has a beginning in time or it doesn't uh, in the way that we uh, sort of felt the need to do in pre-critical philosophy. Okay, um, so let's go on to the, the next bit. Um, Ollie, would you like to read? Um, let's see, where did Angus leave off? Um,
2: yeah, here, here. Here, sensation.
0: Uh, sorry, uh, I'm yes. on the wrong Yeah, okay.
2: Uh, here, sensation feeds on the emotion provoked by absence. Absence involves a richness that is rest to restlessness, develops in absence a feeling of exaltation. To which Jung Jack becomes aware of being fully alive and participating in inner strength. And wants to burst to forth, absence doubled by memory is like a half presence stronger than material presence. Just just as life is not full health, but an intermi- intermediary state between strength and sickness that allows for reciprocity between the physical and the moral. The absence of the beloved object takes on an almost metaphysical signification in Hoso at the time of his passion for Madame Dudito uh, This absence becomes a solitude. Quotes. I begin a correspondence that has no example and will hardly be imitated. End of quotes. Write Hoso to Sophie. This correspondence is in fact a monologue whose only true inter- interlocutor is a Hoso. Quotes. I prefer to pay the courses of trade alone. I do not even hope that you read all the letters I write to you, but at least I will have the pleasure of writing them. End of quotes. Later, I ask Madame Dudito to receive his letters in thanks. Do not be surprised by this strange prayer. It has been so long since I learned to love without return, that my heart is accustomed to it. End of quotes. This manner of loving the image of others that one has within oneself supposes a splitting of the individual, fairly similar to the splitting that provides a reverie, a reverie with a dense density, the power of active performance, uh, permanence. Solitude is the condition of the splitting, and in this search for the reality of the self, solitude intervenes as a means with the greatest richness as a condition of reciprocity between the different parts of the self that the splitting due to to solitude unleashes and exalts. The fruitfulness of the self, its power to arrange its own states in reverie, requires solitude as a condition for establishing this recurrent uh, causality, causality. The paradox of individuality is still revealed in the depth of solitude. Unity of self-consciousness can only be attained through an organizing activity, but this organizing activity itself requires a solitude that provokes a splitting. Internal richness, which makes it such that the unhappy and lone being possesses within it the means to love for two, is not the development of a unity, but the conflict of a nascent duality. Consequently, internal, internal contradiction of states appears as a source of the instability of behavior. Beds of all presence, presence can only be felt through solitude, in the heart of solitude, in the same way of enjoyment and humiliation at the level of the senses. In the fullness, presence is prepared, the emptiness of absence already felt in the in the heart of presence. Of course, if, I, if ever I felt the full force of my attachment, it was when I did not see her, when in her presence I was only content. When absent, my uneasiness reached almost to melancholy. And I wish to live with her gave me emotions of tenderness, even to tears and difficulties. By contrast, in the happy, applied to the appearance of perpetual dissatisfaction and nostalgia, that is a reminiscence of Rucatius's Surgerie à Marie Alicude. Uh, this is what is revealed in the memoire Présente à Monsieur de Saint Marie, which is communicated to Madame Dupont in April 1743. Quotes. Desire is opposed to pleasure. This is an uncontested fact, so we lose over time what we gain from feeling. Desire is the quotes, only feeling the comes does not weaken. End of quote. Pleasure and desire can in some way be measured as the product of intensity by time. For pleasure, the product remains constant, since the two quantities that are its factors vary in inverse proportion. But desire does not submit to this rule. It is like a fire that incessantly devours new objects and is consequently the cause of itself. Due to uh, this scheme of conditional reactive causality, desire has the facility to always be born again and not to reduce itself, since it is nourished by the play of its own exercise. Is it therefore an absolute plenitude? No. For desire is still nothing but in- being in potency, an undefined postulation of the friend or the lover. This desire that maintains itself does not satisfy ins- itself. The more intense it is, the more it creates the anxious search for the encounter with the other person, which is besieged in its real or imaginary contingent existence. Quotes. This house perhaps contains a man made to be my friend, a person worthy of my homage. Perhaps walks every day in this park. End of quote. What conditions itself within the individual is precisely the quest for the contingent encounter of presence coming from outside. The interiority of the individual is not the cause of itself except to the extent that it calls on exteriority. This assaility assay, seeks to a contingency. If this desire manages to abate, the whole individual becomes annihilated. My soul focuses and classes on itself. End of quote. But this contingency conceives itself. Quote, I demand as much as I give, and finding no one who provides. I enter back into myself with the pain of finding the heart, that response to mine. End of quote. quote. Whoever should love me as I know how to love is still to be born. And I, I'm almost done for. End of quote. And Husso concludes by way of extremely an extremely profound and exp- expressive formula. Quote, I needed two souls in the same body. Without that, I always felt empty." End of quote, yeah?
0: Yeah, let's stop here. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, yeah, so here he um, discusses the, the sort of um, duality that arises for Hussou, where um, he, he has this tendency towards uh, loving in absence. He loves the image of the other within himself. He, he um, sort of orients his existence Towards this image of the other more so than towards the the actual other outside himself, and so this kind of love in absence is a is a sort of splitting, in the sense that the image of the other within yourself is separated off or or split from the rest of your your existence and uh, sort of set up as a as the object of love um, uh, within oneself. So uh, this kind of splitting happens in solitude uh so uh Rousseau um is sort of alone in his uh in his office or or wandering uh among the the trees or wherever and in this solitude he is able to um or he has this sense of his love for the other in absence and uh and this allows for him to uh, sort of perform this splitting within himself and and so Simondon uh calls this um the, the paradox of the individual um, where, um, or the paradox of individuality is exactly what he says, um, where um, this, this sort of unity of self-consciousness, the, the sort of sense of oneself um, can only be achieved by, uh, by sort of retreating into solitude and um, having this sort of um, communion with oneself but precisely in this solitude for Rousseau is when he undergoes this splitting operation and feels himself um, sort of separated into um, the the lover and then the object of love uh, and And so there's a, a kind of um, paradox in the sense that he he's unable to um, sort of uh, grasp himself as a whole or to achieve a, a unified self-consciousness because he, in solitude he always uh, performs this sort of splitting operation within himself.
2: Well, it's quite quite interesting. It's like uh, Hoso has like multiple self in in himself, or I mean, which he is trying to go to the one way, like uh, try to seek and fall, try to seek, I mean, try to get to some kind of unity or not. Because he absolute plenitude, what he meant, meant here is like, he, also perceived, his state is kind of related to multiple, multiple self. And then second thing is like the definition of tijaya here interesting too, because kind of compared to the definition of tijaya, uh, Spinoza or other philosophers, I think it has also distinctive points.
0: Yeah, I think um, the yeah you're right to say that there's a kind of multiplicity in in, in Rousseau that uh sort of um defies any attempt at unification. Uh and and uh so this is what what do uh draws from that last line that he quotes from Rousseau that that um he has to feel two souls within one body. Um that's sort of his ideal that he is driving towards uh and and of course this is a, a sort of impossible ideal um but uh what he um but there, at the same time, there's a, a, a constant striving towards this um, uh, unification that is never achievable. Uh, so there's a um, this is the sort of romantic, romantic with a capital R side of, of Rousseau with uh, this sort of impossible task that he set himself of um, uh, realizing a unification of the, this multiplicity within himself. Um, and then uh, um, on the, the second point on... Uh, desire here um yeah i think we can um uh so what what he suggests here is that uh there's a he wants to make a distinction between pleasure and desire um in the sense that uh pleasure is um something that um um that sort of uh is realized and then fades away so um uh achieving pleasure uh sort of leads to the, the sensation, um, fading away. Uh, and, um, so I don't know in a sort of trivial example, if you're, if you're hungry and you have something to eat, you have the, the sense of pleasure of, um, you know, being full or uh, of sort of, uh, satisfying your hunger. Uh, but then that feeling, uh, fades away. Um, it, uh, insofar as it's satisfied, so the the feeling of satisfaction sort of uh, leads to its own um, uh, disappearance, whereas uh, with desire as as presents presented here uh, it it doesn't fade away it actually sort of feeds on itself so the more you and and he's thinking here essentially of or um, in particular of um, desire for a person uh, if you um, if you are in love with a person where you have this desire for a person you uh, you don't sort of lose the desire by satisfying it uh, you um, you that desire sort of feeds on itself and reinforces itself uh, and so he compares it with uh, a fire as a uh, you know that the fire spreads by um, by sort of feeding on uh, on itself and um, and so desire and pleasure are opposed to each other in in this sense uh, even if in sort of um, uh, casual or everyday use, we might sort of um, um, uh, confuse the two or or use them interchangeably to some extent.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm not sure. Like, there there might be a uh or sociologists or like who got inspired by Rousseau. Like, in terms of the desire, kind of as a kind of uh, monstrous. I mean, a monstrous nature of kind of permanently like trying to be like extensive. I mean, the, the nature of uh, permanent, uh, how does extensiveness of the nature of ex- a permanent extensiveness, whatever. Um, well, it's kind of like, I mean, before, before also, as far as I understand, like, uh, con- connecting in connection to pleasure, maybe desire can be be satisfied, kind of like, a, that's kind of like the, according to Spinoza, like, uh, appetite plus perception of the appetite something like that so in in this case like a who maybe like a contributed to the you know like the connection between like the desire and then capitalism neuro capitalism whatsoever in terms of yeah. the nature of yeah.
0: oh sorry um, so
2: sorry in terms of I mean I mean I mean like a limitless like the uh, extensiveness
0: yeah I think um, it would be interesting to look at to what extent um, like uh, I think you're 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 thinking of um Anti Oedipus, right? With um the the concept of desire in uh in Anti Oedipus. Um mm-hmm. and um know, yeah, it would be interesting to look at to what extent they um are potentially drawing on Rousseau in that book. Um um I think they do talk a little bit about Rousseau um in, in that book, but uh in connection with um, the prohibition of incest, which uh, Rousseau talks about, I think in the Discourse on Inequality, or um, um, or uh, yeah, it might be Discourse on Inequality, I can't remember exactly, um, but uh, Derrida talks about, um, they, they sort of draw on Derrida's um, um, discussion of Rousseau on the prohibition of incest, um, but I don't think they make reference Directly to Rousseau on the on the question of um, the nature of desire, um, but here um, I think we can um, we can yeah there's there's a sort of um, double nature I guess to this desire in the sense that um, for for the person desiring it, it this sort of limitlessness or unsatisfiability of desire can be experienced as either something. Um, something positive or something negative, um, it can be experienced either as a, so, um, Simondon refers here to the, to Lucretius's, um, uh, sort of, uh, phrase, aliquid," uh, so something bitter arises. So we, in our, um, in our, um, in our, um, our desire that is never satisfiable, we, um, we uh, feel this uh, lack of satisfaction as a kind of bitterness. Uh, but then there's also a, a sort of alternate experience of this unsatisfiability of desire in the sense that we, um, we can feel it as a kind of um, uh, intensity of life. Uh, in, and so Rousseau experiences his, uh, his uh, sort of um, romantic attachments to um, these absent others as a, a kind of uh, intensity of life that he, he feels himself to be uh, alive and to, he feels his, his love for the other person more when he's separated from them and when, when his desire for that person is not satisfied. Uh, and so there's a sort of um, two alternate ways of experiencing uh, the unsatisfiability of desire.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Um, yeah, so let's read one more section um, and then we'll end a little bit early for today. Um, and uh, we'll continue with the the rest of the Rousseau section uh, next time, Uh, so I can read um, the next page or so. This duality of souls is impossible in the instant, but the schema of succession realizes that which the incoercible unity of the subject does not allow in simultaneity. Apparent instability and self-denial are the means by which this necessary duality of the individual finds a way to exist. Rousseau's life seems like that of two different individuals. The death of the first coincides with the birth of the second. It is at the very least Rousseau's intention to show a profound break in his life, quote, you must admit that this man's destiny has some striking peculiarities. His life is divided into two parts that seem to belong to two different individuals, with the period that separates them, meaning the time when he published books, marking the the death of one and the birth of the other, This is the way Rousseau speaks of himself in the first dialogue. Furthermore, in a letter to Coinde dated 29th of March, 1766, Rousseau writes, quote, I find myself regenerated by a new baptism. I've taken off the old self, unquote. These two errors are opposed from the start as that of happiness to that of misfortune. Quote, what a different picture I will soon have to develop. Fate which favored my inclinations for 30 years contradicted them for another 30. And from this continuous opposition between my situation and my inclinations, one will see born enormous faults, unparalleled misfortunes, and all the virtues except strength, which can honor adversity, unquote. The affective state that envelops expression is itself different. Quote, I wrote the first with pleasure and willingly at my ease at Wooten. Today, I would give anything in the world to be able to shroud in the night of time what I have to say. In the second period, Rousseau orients his most fervent aspirations toward a reality of the eternal return of transitory states. Quote, I'm far away from that dear time of 1762, but I shall come back to it. At least I hope so. I shall go over again in my mind, at least, those pilgrimages to Colombier. Which were the purest days of my life. Might they only begin over again and again, I should ask for no other eternity. Rousseau wants to stabilize himself in everyday existence, to always conserve the same principles, the same convictions. This is the explicit meaning of the reform of seventeen fifty two. Quote, I am now at the maturity of age and the supreme strength of understanding. I have already reached the decline. Let us fix once for all my opinions, my principles, and remain the rest of my life what I shall find I ought to have been, after having reflected. Sunk in weariness and increasing heaviness of mind, I have forgotten even the arguments on which I base my belief and my maxims, but I shall never forget the conclusions I have drawn from them with the approval of my conscience and my reason, and I shall henceforth hold fast to them, Unquote. This fixation in becoming seems even to Rousseau to be filled with a supernatural meaning, Quote, do not these deliberations and the conclusion that I drew from them seem to have been inspired by heaven itself to prepare me for the destiny awaiting me and to enable me to bear it? unquote. Bernardin de Saint-Pierre relates that at the end of his life, Rousseau often said that he wanted to, quote, be oneself, unquote. Uh, Yeah, let's stop here. Um, Right, so this duality is here depicted in temporal terms. Uh, It's um, a kind of duality of two periods of Rousseau's life. So he, he has this early period of his youth, um, where he's sort of um, wandering the world in or wandering uh, around part of Europe in this um, sort of um, freedom, I guess. Uh, he doesn't really have any plans for his life. He he just sort of moves from one occasion to the next. Um, and and then his later stay, which he dates from the time when he starts publishing books, he considers to be one of unhappiness um, because he... he um, he deals with uh, criticisms of his works and um, what he thinks is a conspiracy against him, and uh, and so this is the the sort of division of his life into these two periods. So he he takes this fundamental duality of the individual and he separates it into two chronological uh, periods in his life. Uh, so this is sort of one manifestation of that fundamental duality, uh, or one um, way of grasping that fundamental duality in chronological terms. Okay.
1: Uh, so, uh, I was just going to say this idea of the, the different aspects of the self that come out at different times. It seems like the way that people um, you know kind of people writing about traditional metaphysical issues and in, uh, um, in whatever sense talk about the, the way that uh, contraries can inhabit the same substance. It's always you know, they can't they can have the same substance, but or contrary predicates can be predicated to the same substance, but not simultaneously. Um, so you can have one at one moment um, and the other at a later moment. Yeah,
0: this is sort of the um, metaphysical function of the concept of time, is that it allows for contradictory predicates to be um, attributed to the same substance. Uh, um, so it's it's not contradictory to say that something was hot uh, this morning and now is cold, or or um, whatever other pair of contrary predicates, um, whereas it would be contradictory to say that this, this one uh, cup of coffee is both hot and cold at the same time. Uh, and so, yeah, so this um, sort of schema of time as uh, what allows for the uh, positing or attributing of uh, contrary predicates to the same substance is, is sort of one way of um, uh, making consistent uh, contradictory properties. And so that's sort of how Rousseau was using it here where he has these two um, contradictory or two contradictory tendencies or aspects of himself that he um, uh, sort of separates out in time and, and sets up as being two um, different moments of his life as opposed to um, simultaneous uh, uh, contradictory tendencies.
2: I think this is an interesting point and then maybe we can explore next time. Uh, as far as I understand, when I read the uh, long, I thought like, uh, the relationship between psychic individuation and uh, collective individuation. I thought that uh, collective individuation is a continuation effect of psychic individuation. For example, like accumulation of uh, psychic individuation of each individual uh, uh, leads to the collective individuation, something like that. Uh, in whose case, it's uh, quite interesting because like, as he also uh, said, it seems like a struggle to, to different kind of self entire through the entire life um, maybe like Simon was inspired like from this this portrait of Hoso's life maybe um kind of like I came up with the idea of the psychic individuation or uh collective individuation as a whatever it is continuation of psych uh, continuation of uh each individuation or or separate thing
0: yeah that's a that's a good point um yeah so psychic individuation is sort of continued into collective individuation um uh but yeah so let's let's save that um discussion for next time um so if you could remind me at the beginning uh that would be great and then we can discuss um i think you're right to say that there's um uh, a lot in um the psychic and collective individuation part of volume one that uh, that we can sort of uh, uh uh hypothesize was kind of derived from his study of uso, or at least um that he there's a, a a strong connection between those two uh, parts of his work. Yeah, okay, so oh yeah, that, let's end here for today. Um, so thanks for coming out, and uh, hope to see you next time. And we'll, we'll I think we should be able to finish the section on on the next time.
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week.